On the Empire Podcast this week, we have another trio of brilliant interviewees. as Paul Greengrass shedding light on Captain Phillips, Don Mancini and Fiona Dureff talking Curse of Chucky, and David Gordon Green, the king of Prince Avalanche. Plus, all the usual movie news, reviews and nonsense on the only movie podcast I would quite like a set visit, please, on a film shooting in Brazil ooh, next summer, June, July. Any film. Any film will do. I'm not really picky. And could it last for four weeks, please? Ah, there you go. It's in the laps of the gods themselves. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. Joining me this week are three of the finest musca hounds money can buy. First up is our resident art house guru, a man so cinematically snobby that his favourite Simpsons episode is the Apu Trilogy. It's Phil DeSimlian. It's not. It's now the treehouse of wooden clogs. <laughs> Incidentally, if you're going to, the, if you need to be on set in Brazil for the... Yeah, I do. Well, yeah. Do, do that, if you're following England... I don't, I don't care four how weeks follow. not gilding the lily somewhat I just want to follow football football is the winner of the World Cup Phil I see that's all I want to do good luck with that I mean, I mean I mean, the film that is shooting in Brazil is the winner that's what I would like to go to obviously because cinema is the, the is my ruler is it's my god it's the winner of the World Cup yeah. cinema wins the World well Cup well done cinema uh, and you just heard it there and it's our queen geek a woman who just the other day had Chris Evans no not that one the other one the, the toothbrush guy wave a mobile phone in her face it's Helen O'Hara, celebrity rubber upper the wrong wayer. That's Hello. right. Hello. Hello. What happened? Well, we were in a screening we of, were. of Embargoed. And <laughs> embargoed, Lee Dark Embargoed. And uh, somebody in front of me was was <laughs> checking his mobile phone every sort of five minutes. And, and I leaned forward and very politely asked him to put it away as it was rather distracting. He seemed to take this amiss in any case and then waved his phone above his head with the light on for a couple of minutes. And then about five minutes later left the cinema for good. So sorry about that. Never to return. Never to return. To any cinema, ever. Well, certainly not to that You've one. You've ruined movies for Chris Evans. I was the enslaver. Unbelievable. Yeah. All right, and last but not least is the man who edits our podcast and makes Thelma Shoemaker look like an Oscar-winning editor. It's Ali Plum. Hello, sir. Hello. <laughs> you can edit that in something better. <laughs> You're going to put De Niro's voice on top of that now. No. Great. This is magnetic podcasting. This week's Empire Podcast, Magnetic or Otherwise, is brought to you by our new sponsors, Beyond Two Souls, the new PS3 game from Quantic Dream, otherwise known as the guys who brought you the award-winning Heavy Rain back in 2010. If you're looking for the movie connection, well, Beyond Two Souls stars Ellen Page and Willem Dafoe. So there you go. Uh, for more details on the game, keep your ears peeled at the end of the podcast for a very special announcement by Mr. Ali Plum. But last week, our sponsors were kind enough to give us two copies of Beyond Two Souls to give away, and all you had to do to win them was answer this tried and true, ridiculously easy question, which was Ellen Page first rose to fame playing the lead role in which Jason Reitman movie? Juno was, of course, the answer. And the winners were... Dun, 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 dun. Jamie Madge is the first one. And the second one, Alex Parker. Congratulations to both. Amazing. Hey, that's it. Give him a round of applause. And now... We're going to give away two more copies of Beyond Two Souls. In order to stand a chance of winning them, please answer this tried and true, ridiculously easy question. Simply name the piece of music, the piece of famous classical music that plays in Platoon as Willem Dafoe's character is Swiss cheesed. Phil has got his hand up, but Phil, you can't win the, the competition. You work here already. So to win, stand a chance of winning, send in your answer, your name, and your address to our email address, which is podcast at empireonline.com. Podcast at empireonline.com. We'll read out the winners next week and give two more people the chance to win copies of Beyond Two Souls. And before we uh, get on to the questions section, you guys have been sending in questions all week, lobbing them at us in the same manner as monkeys might fling poo, for example. Uh, before we do that, 
we have an observer this week. It is Lee, our work experience person. Hello, Lee. Hi. You, you can just about hear Lee. He doesn't have a microphone. Workings don't get microphones. There he is. Yeah, I do now. So. Okay, good, good, good. You making a mean cup of tea? Oh, an absolute sensational cup of tea. I think you can all attest to that. Uh, and coffee. And Lee wanted to sit in on the podcast to see the magic happening live, and he's regretting it immediately. <laughs> no, no, it's uh, perfect. You can see. Brilliant little uh, enterprise. There we go. Brilliant little enterprise. He'll be the editor in three years' time. All right, moving on to your questions. Uh, this one's from at the Red Fiber eighty seven who asks: While Captain Phillips opens this week, it does. Well done. Hooray! How about a nautical theme? Best films set out in the open water. Mm, yarp, yarp. First one that came to mind for me, uh, pretty obviously, is Dead Cam. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually saw this uh, earlier this year again at the uh, Glasgow Film Festival, where <laughs> they actually screened it in the belly of a tall ship. Mm. which was awesome and that gave it all a little bit of an extra edge did they then have Billy Zane hunt you down they then had Billy Zane chase you all the way home yeah so that was exciting Um, but no it it just reminded me how darn good that film is it's great Um, I'd also put a shout out really to All Is Lost which is not out yet we'll talk about that in a future podcast but I just saw this week and that's absolutely sensational open water filmmaking Mm -hmm. it is and I have another one, but I'm pretty sure one of you is, is going to say it. So I'm going to. I was afraid it was beyond the side of adventure. Yeah. One of yous one is of going to. One of yous is going to say that. Okay, so hit me with it. What is it? I don't know. It was Master <laughs> and Commander. One uh, of you has got to have okay. Master and Commander, right? Yes. A certain, <laughs> a certain chunk of Jaws is a, and I haven't seen the film. Uh, it's on on the water. I think. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Is that a prequel to Jaws too? It is a prequel. The origin story. Yeah. Of sharks. <laughs> what it is the, the the drama I was going to be here was um, Pirates and Adventures in an Adventure with Scientists oh brilliant which isn't entirely set on the ocean a la Waterworld for example but has enough sea based fun especially the map sequence where you just see the boat poodle along in this yoldy map and then it bumps into what is meant to be an ornamental monster but actually turns out to be a real monster and they hastily go round it yeah. with a dotted ant line walking ant line around it I'm not Ardman, so I'd like to see them make a truly terrible film just so I could go, well, couldn't last forever. But part of me really hopes that doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, let's not. <laughs> uh, actually, recently, on the topic of Ardman, they recently made a lot of money for charity by uh, selling these big versions of Gromit. They were kind of, you know how sometimes you see elephants or big pigs or bubble Cow Parade was the first one, wasn't Cow it? Cow Parade, there you go. Uh, dressed up in different ways, painted in certain ways, like different themes. They did that for Gromits, both in Bristol and elsewhere. Oh, cool. And they've been sold for big chunks of money after, you know, getting donations. That reminds me, uh, when I was hosting the Alan Partridge Alpha Papa premiere in Norwich, Norwich, which I'd never been to before, has a gorilla walk. And what they have is they have lots of uh, ceramic statues of gorillas painted in different ways. And, and there's like 36, I think, that are dotted throughout the orange. So you can do this walk and you can see all the, all the different gorilla statues. And for the premiere, they had one specially made to look like Alan Partridge, an Alan Partridge gorilla. What was he dressed up as? I mean, what he is the defining a, look for Alan? He was wearing a jacket. I've got a picture on my phone somewhere. I'll need it. Check it out. It was very, very weird. Steve Cook and as a gorilla. Um, my, I think I've got a definitive answer on this, is Das Boot, the original 47-hour version of Das Boot, <laughs> which is a, um endurance battle in every sense, but a mighty piece of uh, TV straight filmmaking. Isn't the German pronunciation Bolt? Das Boot. Yes. Yeah, but I'm not German. <laughs> Good point. So, so why should you yield to the language in which the film is printed? <laughs> exactly. He's yeah. every other nationality, but <laughs> yeah. not German. Not German. <laughs> it's no, really not German. 
And <laughs> Nigel Parr is an awesome part. Yeah. I can't believe none of you said Master and Commander. I have oh. actually been there, Master and Commander, because oh, okay, I love fine. it. And when when Peter Weir came in and talked to us, we were we'd been asked about that, and he said it was just too you couldn't get it funded, get the sequel funded. Yeah. Because if you go into any Waterstones, they are like fifty percent Jack Aubrey books and fifty percent other books. <laughs> yeah. So much. there are other stories they could tap into if they wanted to, but he was adamant that a it's too painful to shoot on sea. There's legion of stories about agonizing shoots, most of them involving Marlon Brando. And they're, uh, it's just too difficult to get that sort of film funded, which is a shame because I love it. But it seems to be getting easier to film on water these days. I mean, we interview Paul Greengrass on this very podcast, and he seems to have had a bit of a breeze shooting Captain Phillips, to be honest. And uh, JC Chandor, for all his loss, said, Yes, it's a bit annoying when you are 40 minutes away from the, the, the shore where you're based, and then Robert Redford needs to pee and you need to go back. Yeah. But otherwise, it's getting a lot easier. He I mean, can't pee in the sea. Yeah, Robert can't. Redford can't be in the sea. He's a he's he's, he's a legend. Classy. Yeah. He's used to jumping into the water by now. Surely he can sneak in a way on the way down. It's the fall that'd kill him though. <laughs> Precisely. Also, no one's mentioned Open Water, which isn't a very good film, but is scary as hell. Having just snorkel for the first time, it is very, very scary. <laughs> it's not snorkeling, obviously I know in the movie, but I, I've happens. only just learned to swim and it was absolutely terrifying. Just so the water. idea of yeah, the idea of being surrounded by, you know, sharks going nibble nibble. Uh, what about Lifeboat? That's a good one. Yeah, that's yep. a very good one. Talking about, you know, shooting... Yeah, let's go back a bit. ...on yeah. a soundstage and uh, and getting the, the Hitchcock cameo in that one was pretty pretty intriguing. Yeah, it was good. His most self-effacing cameo, wasn't it? Wasn't it? The advert one. for, like, weight loss with a picture of himself. <laughs> um, that's a good one. What would Hitchcock have made of Life of Pi, do you think? He would have been like, hey, which one's the Nazi? <laughs> it's the hyena, clearly. Definitely the hyena. <laughs> let's move on. Oh, no, no, we need to mention Captain Ron so you get angry. Uh What's Captain Ron? It's not really in the open water, though, is it? It's. I mean, it's 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 on the water. It's on a river, isn't it? I mean, I walked out halfway through <laughs> of a VHS tape. Okay, I tell but you what. Let, let's just put this one to bed. Waterworld. Yeah. Okay. All the backstory, all the history of that, and all the the negativity around it. Let's go around the table. What you give it out of five stars as a movie? I haven't seen them since it came out, but I. I, I three. Three probably. It's yeah, actually not that bad. I go along with three. Yeah. What would you say? The two times I've watched it, I remember thinking, why did I bother both times? Okay, oh, so that's a three. <laughs> no, 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 that's definitely No, three is a recommendation. Good point. Sorry, Chris. Why did I bother both times is a two. <laughs> uh, right. Well, I, I think my favourite, oh. sorry, my favourite Waterworld fact, though, is the fact that Kevin Costner now calls people up when he hears they're making a movie on the water and goes along and, and just tells them how to avoid his mistakes. I think that's just brilliant of him. Uh, we had Peter Bergen last year telling us that Kevin Costner, completely unbidden, called him up to offer advice when he was making Battleship. And I think that's just delightful. It, it shows a real collegiality and, uh, mm. you know, public spiritedness. So well done him. Do you know when Peter Berg was in the, uh, in the office, it was really eye opening. Did you know that two thirds of Peter Berg exists beneath the surface? <laughs> That's the worst joke I've ever heard. <laughs> that's genius. I think you're right there. There are there's subtext. Guys, guys, you know why that's funny? Why? Because I don't. Oh. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, all right, moving on. We're moving on from this. Otherwise, we're just going to list films. This is what the sends into every week. We just list films. I'll stop. All right. At NC Low asks, regular contributor to the podcast says, Cheers. well done that. Captain Phillips. Again, Captain Phillips. At times, made me feel a little seasick. Any films have provoked actual physical reactions in you sexy ones <laughs> <laughs> let's not <laughs> that isn't funny it's a little funny you're right you're right being sexually aroused is not amusing it's not amusing it's a very serious situation I have to sit next to, to you every day okay now we've, we've settled down a bit have any films provoked actual physical reactions in you and I mean maybe above the waist Ali let's 
Let's keep it clean for the kids. Gravity made me feel kind of like I was falling into the screen because they had these shots which revolve 360, 360, 360 perspective uh, with the point of view and then you, you see Earth and then you come away from Earth and you see Earth again and then you'll have shots which are just Earth and you feel like you're falling into the cinema. So that, that would be a big one recently and you'll know what I mean hopefully if I've made any sense at all mm. uh, there when you see it. Uh, Helen? Well, in terms of sort of seasickness or anything like that I've never really had that even with something like Blair Witch I didn't I didn't particularly get that I've had films that made me furious genuinely furious um, but we've talked about you know <laughs> Anonymous and Three Musketeers Bond. and The Dark Knight Rises and stuff before and, and lots of films make me squirm like a small scared thing um, so that's probably the most common reaction. One that comes to mind, and it's not necessarily the worst defender, but King Kong. I was sort of jumping all over the place during the giant bugs. Yes, uh, it's the uh, scene where the, the the worm things are. The worm in things King are attacking. The, yeah, the, the Jackson King Kong. Yeah, the Jackson King Kong. Peter Jackson is the only director who's almost ever made me physically sick uh, during Brain Dead, which is one of my favourite films but that film is just beyond gory in the last 20-30 minutes but there's a there's a bit about halfway through where um, the hero's mother is infected by a zombie virus and it it manifests itself by bits of her just start dropping off and they have people around for tea and uh, oh. <laughs> her ear drops off into oh. custard and oh. she starts eating it unaware is that oh can we let's and it's it you, I, I, I must went, mm. yeah it's it's well, otherwise I'm, I'm pretty good otherwise I'm pretty good the other one I'd mention is I went to see Mimic and I had my hair twisted back in with a bunch of hairpins in it at the time in a, in a slightly ornate fashion and one of my hairpins fell down the back of my neck during one of the scary bug scenes that did not go down Ooh. well that was bad Yikes. it's often a symptom of like really good sound design that kind of like violin like a sound that you get sometimes with those sort of, you know insecty buggy noises coming kind of walking across glassy surfaces that really freaks me out recently there's a scene in Rush which really did provoke a physical reaction it, it's a bit where Nicky Lauda's been airlifted to hospital he's got massive internal burns and they use what I can only describe as a lung a lung Dyson on him um, and and kind of hoover his oh, insides yeah, yeah, yeah. out and I really did gag watching that which is because you can really feel it down your, down your gullet it's pretty intense uh, Killer Joe chicken drumstick scene made me feel kind of oh, really that made me feel yeah. Yeah. <laughs> God, I was like jonesing for a KFC like, <laughs> it's so hungry yeah right <laughs> um, Gaspar Noe is a master at doing this I think he does it deliberately I think he wants a physical reaction from audiences and when he made Irreversible and released it at Cannes or screened it at Cannes rather he got one didn't like I think 250 people walked out of his screening out of like 240 yeah but people in Cannes are there to be yeah. outraged yeah I know yeah. I know but I mean if you've watched say what was his most recent one Enter the Void I mean it's it's a sensual kind of overload type experience so you do feel it which mm. a lot of filmmakers go for uh, definitely I've never really felt dizzy though I mean there's there's a there's a shot in <laughs> uh, Event Horizon very early <laughs> oh, on God. there's a 720 degree um, pan that Paul Anderson designed to make people dizzy and it does but then it's over mm. and then the film ha happens and it's awesome and so you're, you, you get over it yay <laughs> Uh, that was our latest update from be, the Event Horizon fan yes. club. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> it's, been, it's been 16 years of Event Horizon. I sure, I saw, I sure, I sure, I saw oh, Sean Pertwee in the street just the other day, wandering around trying to find you to be interviewed by you about oh, it again. Man. I have Great to add, time. this will be a good time to mention 
William Castle, one of the great cinematic showmen, yes. and his brilliant inventions, including The Tingler, in which he tried to electrocute his audience at moments <laughs> of great shock, and Emergo, in which some kind of wobbly funfair skeleton would swoop down across the audience at moments of great terror to widespread sort of disbelief and, and uh, lack of interest. Um, <laughs> did you not go and see a film where they did something similar? The Avengers did a shaky seat thing. Shaky seat thing. Uh, no, it, yes, was a, it was shame, wasn't it? It was shame, yes. Uh, <laughs> no, it was the, yes, the D-Box experience, which yeah, they have at some, steady, uh, which they have at some cinemas. And they basically, it's, it's like one of those kind of futuroscope uh, rides where the, the the screen reflect or the, the seat reflects what's happening on screen. Um, it's a total gimmick, but I have to say it's kind of fun for that kind of big popcorn movie. It's a lot of good fun. Brilliant for Captain Phillips, you think? If they can make the seats kind of do all of those ones, and you're oh gosh, the, it could be, you know. You know I think, I mean, or if they did it for the gravity swell. and gave you a little bit of a float, you know, that would be pretty amazing. But I think they mostly keep it for the really, you know, the obvious um, blockbusters. That would be an incredible Universal Studios ride, uh, Gravity. Yes. Genuinely. You know how the Simpsons ride, if you've ever been to Universal Studios, is totally surround, box surround, uh, like IMAX experience that mm. gives you the impression that you're going on a roller coaster, where in reality you're kind of staying still yeah. in this group of seats. But if you have that in space and you're getting chucked around and that would be amazing. catapulted past a satellite, I genuinely think we, you know, maybe some cinemas should do more with this kind of crazy immersive stuff. Like if you go to the Muppets 4D at uh, in, in Florida at Disney World, they've got, you know, Muppets in the walls chatting to you and coming out the screen and all sorts. If you go to the Shrek 4D ride, they've got little jets of air that blow on the back of your legs to make when, mm. when there are bugs mm. on screen. So you think the bugs are on your legs, which is scary. I've I don't like bugs. This is I don't know if that's coming across, but I've done good. that in Japan. Yeah. No concession whatsoever for uh, for Westerners. There are no subtitles. No one interprets or translates. And so you're going, I honestly do not know what the <laughs> hell is it's, going on. I mean, to be fair, there aren't any Japanese subtitles in Florida either. So, you know. True. True. Here's a question. What would be the worst film for Smell-O-Vision? <laughs> There's a scene in uh, Slumdog Millionaire you wouldn't like. I was just thinking that. Yeah. Oh, that'd be awful. Yeah, Shawshank near the end of Shawshank. Or the Pukano in, in uh, Jackass. Basically anything with poo. <laughs> so what we've discovered today is that poo is smelly. Is that is that what we've got? Yeah, we also had some sort of sexual revelations from your department, but we won't talk about those any further. Have we? Let's move on um, swiftly uh, to a question from at Megadaz. Quick podcast question, he says, with all the attention on 2015, what films have we got to look forward to for 2014? None! So many! That's it! Okay, here's the ones I wrote down that I'm excited about. The Monuments Men, uh, George Clooney... Uh, museum creators fighting World War Two. Inside Lewin Davis spoiler I've already seen this and I know it's good mm-hmm. 12 Years a Slave just getting amazing reactions Captain America The Winter Soldier I'm excited about Guardians of the Galaxy keeping it Marvel Godzilla very exciting X-Men Days of Future Past my most anticipated film of 2014 22 Jump Street because I love the first one The Lego Movie first Batman versus Superman film let's not forget mm-hmm. How to Train Your Dragon 2 I genuinely adore the first one I could not be more excited about that and speaking of could not be more excited Fast and Furious 7 yeah seriously Tomorrowland <laughs> and Interstellar come on that's right. a year to that I'm going to add my second most anticipated film of 2014 which is The Raider 2 Barandal Ooh, which yes. I think is going to be absolutely amazing and I've got a really I, you know, I have said this before but I've got huge huge hopes and expectations for Days of Future Past and I hope and I believe that uh, they will deliver 
I'm looking forward to Fifty Shades of Grey so we can stop bloody talking about it. We'll I'm also stop about it. looking forward to some of the sci-fi. It seems like a good year for like cerebral in- sci-fis. Um, Wally Fester's first film, Transcendence. Transcendence as well, yeah. And obviously Interstellar, um, Christopher Nolan's movie, and The Wachowskis are back with Jupiter Ascending. Um, a Fury. Because I love a tank movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not yeah. enough tank movies. Absolutely. Um, and Budapest Hotel, Wes Anderson, and uh, Noah, because Jesus. <laughs> no, Noah. Noah, sorry. Yeah, Noah's been uh, in the news recently because uh, it's been revealed that they've been showing it in test screenings to uh, different groups of people. Reportedly, for a Jewish community, a more uh, Christian community, and for a general community community, not related to the show at all, <laughs> uh, and measuring their results and... The studio gave Darren Aronofsky, who made Noah, creative control. It is his movie, but they're still test screening it to work out which version of what they're doing they want to release. And apparently it's been getting a lot of um, strong reactions. I mean, that kind of means nothing. It means that Mm -hmm. a movie movie by Darren Aronofsky, you know, Black Swan, etc., is provoking strong reactions from religious groups about a story which is, you know, from the Bible. Mm. So maybe there's no big surprise there, but it's interesting to know that they are doing that. Yeah. This yeah. is a bit like, you know, when you're pregnant, you don't tell people after, you know, a month or two months, do you? You wait. And I think this is the part of the process that they probably don't want revealed publicly because test screenings aren't unusual. I guess what's unusual is Aronofsky such a singular voice and such a sort of, um, you know, very much an independent filmmaker by mindset. And this is a very big studio movie, so there's a lot riding on it. Uh, I'm sure that whatever he has in mind is going to be worth watching one way or the other. Also, Passion of the Christ provoke huge reactions and was a massive success but I think what they're doing is essentially related to the passion of the Christ in some ways I think what they're trying to figure out is should they be marketing this specifically as church groups or religious groups in the way that the passion of the Christ very much did it very much you know had had church ministers taking busloads of their parishioners to screenings um, and I think they're trying to work out if that kind of approach is going to work here from what we're hearing and of course we're only hearing part of the story um, it sounds like that might not be the approach to go with in this case but it'll be interesting to see how they how they do market it and how they make it work they're going to market it straight to the animals it's weird because we uh, we um, in the UK cheated a little bit because all the Oscar movies tend to come out in January so January, February are yeah. very, very good months for us in the UK, whereas in the US, I know we have a lot of American listeners, it, it generally tends to suck. But uh, So you're looking at January, for example, of next year, we have Spike Jones's Her, which is a, a film I'm hugely looking forward to. Uh, Foxcatcher, which is another film. Night of the Hunter, that, that, that little Robert Mitchum movie is going to re-release. It's fantastic. <laughs> the Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, this is, this is gonna be, uh, It's going to be a good year. I think 2015... It might be an important distinction to make. 2015, I think, will be the biggest year in movie history. I think it's going to be enormous. We have franchises smashing into each other like like comets or planets. 2014, from what I've seen so far, looks like it could be a very, very good year quality-wise. Yeah, and to be honest, 2013 is going that way as well. This is this is an incredible Oscar season so far. Um, it's really shaping up to finish strong. Uh, from my personal perspective, um, I'm quite looking forward to Robocop. Um, you know, Get out! I, uh, I mean, I, kidding. I grew up with the... Uh, you know, with the John McClane's, the Terminators, and the Robocops of uh, this world, that wasn't very. My parents weren't very responsible in that sense. Um, but um, <laughs> you know, I was um, watching that sort of stuff when I was a kid. But um, yeah, I sort of just adored that sort of stuff as a child, and um, I'm certainly for- looking forward to it as a fan. Fingers yeah. crossed. Yeah. And going in with an open mind. Yeah. Uh, Muppets Most Wanted as well. I've just seen. That's a good one. Uh, okay, very very last question is from at Nathaniel Smith, who asks, which director has the best masterpiece to stinker ratio? For my money, it's Miyazaki, who hasn't made a bad film. That's not my words. That's words of Nathaniel Smith. So, what do you think, guys? 
I'd like to put forward we just mentioned him Charles Lawton Night of the Hunter <laughs> directed one film it's a classic yes. 100% hit rate one nil mm-hmm. I was going to add Jean Vigo to that made two films then he died <laughs> they were both masterpieces go him is that the guy who was on um... no no can I, can I make the joke are you not going to make the joke can I go on make the joke can I can I make go on. I have permission to make the joke okay did he ever wear waistcoats and pot snooker balls <laughs> on Saturday Night TV in the late 90s <laughs> yes he did good yes. oh, okay. All right. John Virgo director of Latterland in terms of uh, in terms of films uh, Phil for people who may not know John Fiegel's work uh, what was his big break uh, he made a he made a black and white opus called Snookering You Tonight <laughs> set, set on the canals of northern France featuring um, <laughs> Captain yeah. Sensible actually he did make a film called Zero for Conduct which would be I don't know there's a snooker joke there somewhere, somewhere make it for yourselves people I like that when I go and see you know big name comedians like Chris Rock and whatever and they just they just start a joke and then halfway through just go She's finished that off. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm You've got all the raw materials. Yeah, I'm, I'm bought that. Yeah, I've given you. I've taken you to the water. I've I can't give some drink. kindling and a, and a, and a stick. Um, anyway, uh, yes, I would suggest that we differentiate this between a previous question that we've been asked, which is, what's the longest purple patch? What's the biggest streak? Mm. So this is different, and this also relies on people forgiving maybe half decent movies yeah. that aren't great but let's give them a pass so i would suggest quentin tarantino has not made a bad film christopher nolan i think you could also say that yep not made a bad film not made a bad film no but insomnia is not great oh crikey uh paul thomas anderson uh, is also one which will get yes. some yep. people alien versus predator event horizon Col- uh, sorry paul <laughs> Thomas. Oh, Paul Thomas, Thomas. Anderson, sorry. I'm really good. important there. Always getting those two mixed up. Yeah, yeah. That also with Kubrick. Uh, I would say, though, Paul Thomas Anderson has never made or will ever make a film as good as Event Horizon. And you can take that. <laughs> you can take that. You can take that to the bank where it will be turned <laughs> away because it is not valid currency. That's what that I is. I don't even believe That's this is a legal <laughs> Martin Scorsese has made a couple very, very early on has anybody here ever seen Boxcar Bertha? No, I haven't. It's not the best. It is not the best, but it does contain in the credits um, a shout out to uh, Powell and Pressburger, and you've got to love an exploitation movie that does that. Uh, but yeah, Monsko says he is, is yes, Monsko says he, and he has not made a bad film. What about bringing out Dad? Has a lot of critical fans. Cundin. <laughs> what about? But you mentioned Powell and Pressburger, or Michael Powell. Or Howard Hawks, or John Ford, or mm. Kubrick. Woody Allen's made some bad films, but oh, yeah, overwhelmingly yeah, no, but his, he's made yeah, good but films. No, his his ratio is not perfect, not though. Perfect. Let's yeah. be honest. In Woody- the same way that you know the Coen Brothers have made a heck of a lot of classics, but then there is Lady Killers, so that does no. drag them down somewhat. I don't know, Fellini, Bergman, Pixar Ozzy. collectively mm. um, or individually are doing pretty damn well on the ratio stakes. Pixar, do you feel like they've still at the moment on, on a downward trajectory? Well, if you take out individual directors, though, they're still fine. Brad Bird, still fine. So, you know, we've got some love there. George Lucas, THX 1138, American Graffiti, Star Wars, The Phantom Menace, Red Tails. Attack of the Clones, uh, <laughs> and Revenge of the Sith. Six yeah. films. Red Tails. Six masterpieces. Didn't direct Red, Red Tails. Um, six absolute, irrefutable classics <laughs> let me go ahead and refute that one uh, I, I'm not even going to bother uh, Steve McQueen but currently the first three are classics first yes three are the first three are classics Steve McQueen um, it's it's too early to say he's only made three but they're certainly pretty darn good so far I think there's a case to be made for James Cameron having a pretty healthy ratio 
uh, in terms of his directorial films. I'm not sure masterpieces is maybe the word though, but just you know. Or for Piranha. I was thinking not for Piranha. Thinking about this question from an actor's point of view because it's interesting for an actor who's got a really really you know clean slate of great movies. Someone like Daniel Day Lewis has you know made really really good films, and I was just going to say that. It's difficult for an actor because they don't know how the film's going to end up, whereas mm. the director has it in their head and they can kind of bring that to the screen, whereas an actor is slightly in the hands of other people in terms of how good the final film is. Uh, and yet Daniel Day-Lewis, up until he made Nine, which is a total stinker, um, had only really made good films. And I think there are actors that are... Yeah. Joseph Gordon-Levitt feels like one of those sorts of very discerning actors who, who, who look like they're almost got one eye on making sure they don't do any stinkers. Um, Robert De Niro for a long portion of his career was like that and then something happened cool so again we're going to get that point where we're just listing people yeah we are a bit uh, Lee do you want to come in on this one very quickly Edgar Wright um, yeah well, Edgar Wright yeah definitely um, I agree with a lot of those Steve McQueen I think is is on a nice little roll thank you Lee and uh, if you want to ask questions of us and have them answered in the podcast do send your questions in we're on Twitter uh, at Empire Magazine and use the hashtag Empire Podcast. You can email us podcast at empireonline.com or you can Facebook us where we are, of course, Empire Magazine. Okay, time for our first interview now. David Gordon Green is one of the finest indie directors in America, starting out with the gorgeous likes of George Washington and Undertow before moving on to character-based comedies like Pineapple Express and this week's Prince Avalanche, starring Paul Rudd and Emil Hirsch. Green came to London recently and pod booted up a storm with Helen. And me. And Phil. There you go. Enjoy. We are joined today by David Gordon Green to talk about his new film, Prince Avalanche, and a whole lot more. Hello, how are you doing? Hello, hello, I'm doing great. T- tell us a bit about the film, just the kind of basics, because it's, it's a remake, isn't it, of an Icelandic film? That's right. A remake of a film called Either Way, that outside of Iceland wasn't, uh, wasn't seen really widely, other than it played uh, at some film festival mm-hmm. and got some uh, great acclaim, particularly I think it won Best Picture at the Torino Film Festival, which is how it got on my radar. I had won that same award in 2000, and so I kind of kept up with the festival and and it kind of got on my radar. And when I was thinking about a project I could make in the aftermath of this wildfire, not far from my home in Austin, Texas, I looked at that film and thought, well, this is an amazing character piece that I could uh, adapt, put my spin on really quickly and efficiently and, uh, uh, and use that backdrop uh, for, for a great character piece. So was it was it also um, you know road workers there was it a very similar kind of setup? Yes, it yeah. was. It was. I mean, it, it's a very respectful adaptation in a lot of ways. I mean, um, I transcribed all the things that I thought were very applicable and I loved. Uh, some of which are even awkwardly uh, kind of the awkward translation. I thought okay. were funny, so we we used that when when um, when it, when it made sense. And then uh, you know, in a very short script, sixty page script, we were allowed to let it loose and have fun and improvise and come up with new things and characters that weren't in the script would appear in the film and it just became a very liberating organic process it was a very low budget movie uh, that we were able to convince Paul Rudd and Emile Hirsch to to join us on this strange adventure uh, strange adventure painting stripes down the side of a road <laughs> and, and the middle as well I mean the, in terms of adding new characters so I, I read about the old lady Joyce so that was just a kind of a fortuitous happenstance was it yeah we were location scouting and, and happened upon someone who had been devastated and, and lost her home in the fire and was looking for her pilot's license and, and that that just became such a beautiful poignant funny sad curiosity that uh, we asked her if she'd let us film her talking about this and we integrated Paul Rudd's character into the sequence and it became kind of a magical hypnotic otherworldly texture that we, we, we found ourselves in the middle of and it really affected the tone of the rest of the movie you know it's not you hear Paul Rudd and you typically for the last few years would think bigger broader comedy and this is 
a dramatic role for him. Uh, Emil Hirsch actually plays a comedic counterpart where I think he uh, gets a lot of the laughs in the film. But Paul's character is very sensitive. And, and that that scene, that sequence with Joyce really showed us that, um, you know, we're working with a great actor there, not just a, a, a great comedian. Yeah. I, I wanted to talk about the <laughs> otherworldly aspect as well, because there's a whole thing about other people not seeing her and it really gave it a different kind of spin i was like is this a ghost story at one point you know it was, it was just a really nice little touch prepare yourself for our supernatural tale <laughs> 14 days i think i believe the shoot was yeah you know we we're scheduled so for 18 and we, we we had such an efficient group of people working on it that we finished at 16 and then just had a two-day rap party yeah, really yeah <laughs> that's astonishing it's the, it's the way to go i think like you know you'll work on these movies and they take 50 60 days to to shoot some of these movies because you shoot you have all these rules when you're making uh, big budgeted movies. You know, there's a lot of a lot of things that go into that, other than just the efficiency of production, um, which strangely is not high on their agenda. Uh, but with a movie like this, where every dollar counts, and you want to make everything feel like it costs ten times what the budget is, um, you move quickly. And if you hire great people with good instincts, uh, you'd be surprised how, how how efficiently a movie set can run. We were talking about your friend Jeff Nichols, who's been a veteran on the Empire podcast, telling us about Mud, and you were saying how you watch each other's movies. Yeah, it's what really sort fun. Of, what, sort of time, what kind of point in the process is it valuable to have the input of another director? Well, it depends. Uh, and on different projects, we've had different uh, relationships. Uh, I was a producer on Shotgun Stories, which was his first movie, and a lot of my job was introducing him to people that would give him cash to make a movie, you know? Um, or on uh, Pineapple Express, he came out to California and watched a rough cut screening that we showed in front of a big audience for the first time. You know, it's one thing to trust an audience; it's another to hear from your buddy that it's working or it isn't working. Um, Take Shelter. I read a script of. I didn't actually. I read a very early draft of Mud, maybe seven years ago, and then would go into the editing room and watch a cut. And he's been in the edit room on uh, my last two movies, so it's, it's kind of fun. And when I saw Mud for the first time. Um, I was really impressed with this young actor, Ty Sheridan, who was in Tree of Life that Terrence Malick discovered. And um, and then I ended up casting Ty in my new movie as a result of it, or or he put Shea Wiggum from All the Real Girls in uh, Take Shelter. So it's kind of fun having a real community of, of filmmakers in Austin is known for the likes of Terrence Malick and Richard Linkletter and Robert Rodriguez and Mike Judge. It's just, uh, it's great to have, um, I don't know, a, a group of people, artists and technicians that... Uh, care about their culture and live outside the traditional studio system. Do you have a take on the end of Take Shelter? Because we we, we tried to pin Jeff down, and understandably he's circumspect about like interpreting his own film. But as a film oh, yeah. lover, oh, do yeah. you have a what, uh, do you have a take on it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm the same way. If I was him, I wouldn't say anything. It's you know part of the joy, and I think that 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 certainly applies to Prince Avalanche is the ambiguity of it and letting audiences discuss among themselves or go home and think about it or wake up the next morning and realize it was something that they didn't think of before. Um, but but. I, but <laughs> I feel like Take Shelter is a pretty obvious one. Oh, okay. Yeah. I agree exactly with what you think. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> You've been doing this for a while. I mean, <laughs> amazing. Um, Nick Cage... And um, and Ty Sheridan, we talked about in your new movie. Is it true that you got Nick Cage helped you do some of the location scouting? Yeah, you know on- he worked on uh, uncredited, but, uh, but when we were first talking about Joe, I was location scouting for uh, Avalanche, and so we were talking on the phone. He's like, "Well, why don't I just come out there and we can talk face to face?" I was like, "Well, I'm location scouting." He's like, "I can location scout too." So we drove around and found a lot of the locations that would ultimately end up in in Avalanche, and then once we wrapped that film, we went into production on Joe shortly after and. Um, so you could like 
is he a backseat driver? Is he a good passenger? He's a wonderful he- passenger. <laughs> we got into the craziest conversations. And that's the way, you know, there's so there's a lot of times when you're with an actor or in an introduction to an actor I had never met him before. And, you know, quickly he was driving around in my Subaru Forester with, you know, my two kids' car seats in the back seat and <laughs> smells like vomit because they've been puking after a road trip. And uh, you got Nicholas Cage, you know, and sh- riding shotgun uh, and DJing and, you know, Flipping through the radio stations, finding something trashy to listen to, <laughs> and uh, and it was a very fun process. And have a you have a, an actor that is is limitless in his enthusiasm and passion for his craft. It's really wonderful to be with people that, that work with with that bravery. Yeah, he he talked to us recently about the uh, the snake scene, and he said that having a real venomous snake, he thought would relax him. Yeah, he's weird like that. Yeah, I, I can't say I feel the same way about myself, but but I do understand certain anxieties um, release certain internal chemicals in in, in me, and and uh, and I think it was a funny sequence in that. In the, we're talking about the movie Joe with Cage, where he wanted to use a venomous cottonmouth as a prop. And who am I to argue with Nicolas Cage? So yeah, we just had to, all the producers kind of look the other way and fake <laughs> cough as we <laughs> revealed the sna- snake, which you know he's a and. and Cage does, I do have to say, he has something subliminal or subconscious uh, in his connections with the animal kingdom. Like, it, there, were, there would be dogs on set or animals that I, I actually, I got bit by a dog on uh, uh, when we were location scouting, and it was pretty massive. Because me and dogs, sometimes uh, sometimes we butt heads, but Cage can go, you know, he can kind of, he can dog whisper. Iguana whisper as Iguana well. Iguana whisper, yeah. yeah. He's got a new exotic cockroach that he has. That's, no I mean, he's just... I just I just love his enthusiasm for for life and nature and existence. It's just amazing. I didn't know cockroaches came in exotic. I for, I, I'd, I'd hate to be ignorant about this. No, this amazing cockroach. But <laughs> first he was scared of him, and now now they've made peace. Wow. I guess it's the shamanic side of his acting that kind of comes mm-hmm. out. Maybe so. Times. It's yeah. a beautiful thing. It is. I mean, talking about your career. I mean, you you said in, in a recent interview that you wanted to be like Richard Jenkins you wanted to be the director of you know I say that's a great Richard quote Jenkins. that is a great quote I'm glad you I'm glad you picked up on that I, th- <laughs> I, I think I look at my career you know people I don't know people have uh, commented on my kind of strange bipolar profession of uh, of small intimate dramatic independent minded uh, films that very few people see or some of the bigger more commercially successful broad comedies uh, and I, I do have a lot of different things going on in my head and different interests and uh, in my career, and I look at it like a character actor would. And I look at somebody like Richard Jenkins as a really inspiring guy that you can see in a big Hollywood blockbuster, or you can see him pop up in a strange little art film, and mm-hmm. he's there for the craft and the curiosity. And I, I find myself emulating that. It's a very good quote. I was I was impressed. Uh, not as good though. I think I have, I have to say your your, your best quote was uh, I was on set of Your Highness, and you said it was Barry Lyndon meets Kroll, which I, th- I still think is the greatest description of anything I've ever. With heard a splash in my life. of Cabin Boy. Well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, I said that to the studio executives uh-huh. in our initial pitch of that movie, and and it was, uh, it, it was greeted with smiles. I have to say, <laughs> like, you never think that would fly, but it, it was greeted with smiles, and they said. Don't say that anymore. But we like it. <laughs> See when I'm told everyone. <laughs> but those are very those are very instrumental movies uh, in my youth and in, in two absolutely opposite arenas. Mm. But things that I thought, well, hey, if you could combine them, why not? And we did. Yeah. And you did. <laughs> <laughs> I got to be honest. I sat down last night to watch one of your broader comedies, um, The Sitter, mm-hmm. with my mom. And I just want to say, did you have to start with the cunnilingus scene? Oh yeah, your mom loved that part. <laughs> she no, she she really didn't. <laughs> she really didn't. And uh, yeah, there's a I lot of things know. I could say right now. But uh, uh, I, I thought that was a great way to, to start. I actually wanted there was a beginning. You know, the, there's the traditional 20th Century Fox 
triumphant uh, music that accompanies the logo at the beginning of the movie, and I wanted her to be climaxing the logo, the music for over the logo. That hasn't been done. I mean, we've no. had eight bit, we've had all sorts of different you know takes on movie logos, it, but I don't think we've had an orgasmic the, one. It was the only thing that I that the studio was like, I don't think uh, you should do that. I think it was it was kind of a, it's kind of a sacred uh, a, a sacred song. So that's a brilliant. We idea. couldn't orgasm our way through it. I love Sam Rockwell in that movie. I love Sam Rockwell all the time. It, all the time. He, he in every movie. movie. Yeah. yeah, he's, he's phenomenal. Amazing. And we have um, a colleague back at work who would hate me if I didn't ask you about his dancing. Because uh, if this, like, I mean, he's got these amazing moves and you utilize them to the max in the sitter. Not to the max. Like, he's really, really a capable dancer. I've done two movies with him now. And he, he has a dance sequence in the movie Snow Angels that we did, the very dramatic movie several years ago. <clears throat> and um, and he's a, he's a great boxer and a great dancer. He's just a great physicality physical presence um and we had we had we filmed a ton of it it didn't all end up in the movie we there's there's mountains of film that we did of footage that we filmed with sam from that movie of, of some very strange strange things he, he basically is the, the he he runs he's a drug dealer that runs a very exotic um uh, i don't know drug da- lounge i'd say um but we've had all sorts of things of like you know a lot of steroid usage and Guys smoking crack and watching Mr. Belvedere on television, taking bubble baths, and you know there was full there was some full bodybuilder exploitation in that, <laughs> and, and some earlier versions of that movie. Carl with a K, right? <clears throat> Carl with a K. We're going to see a Carl with a K spinoff movie. Hilarious <laughs> in that film. Speaking of spinoff movies, uh, this is the end. Obviously, sequelized Pineapple Express. So, y- were you on set that day? I know you were on set for part of this. Is the end? No, you? I went after right after that. Actually, I remember watching the dailies of that. They had just filmed it, and I was, I was sad that I missed. Uh, Miss their, their spoof, but I I find it a, uh, a strange honor to be to have the work I've done ridiculed. I think it's kind of funny <laughs> and, and inspiring. Like I think they did a great job of uh, their twist on those characters. And uh, there's a long version of that that is incredible, and I'm I'm hoping is on the DVD because it's so you get those guys in a room, and uh, you know it's it's hard not to laugh your ass off. Yeah. It's fun. So, I mean, that's why any, uh, I heard they're all making a movie together, and I was like, well, I'm absolutely going to go visit that set, <laughs> spend a little time in New Orleans, and, uh, and hang out and have some fun. We both love uh, The Confederacy of Dunces as a book, and absolutely. we'd love to see it on screen, and I know that you'd work with Steven Soderbergh for a while on trying to make that happen. He's called it a cursed project. Yeah. Do you go along with right. that? <laughs> really? Yeah, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of movies that, for whatever reason, you know, sometimes uh, that's a project that has to be specifically cast at a point where there's an actor of value that fits that character, right? Um, it's a period piece. It's an expensive movie. Yeah. It's uh, an eccentric, uh, very acclaimed novel, but not an obvious formula to uh, commercial success in, in film. Um, it's uh, it, it's it's a very funny book, but it's not a comedy. And it's these things that are easy to get away with when you're making a low budget independent film. But um, when you when you require the resources of some of the m- more logistical endeavors, it becomes very difficult and challenging. And we spent a lot of time. I spent a couple of years working on that, as, as I have on a few movies. And luckily, I haven't let I haven't really let anybody be the gatekeeper of my productivity. And and that was one that I was disappointed to see go. But it also introduced me to New Orleans. I ended up living there for seven years mm. um, after that project fell apart, and and really being inspired by that city. There was no talk of moving the location. It had to be like New Orleans. It had to be in that locale. Uh, yeah. Well, I don't know. It wouldn't be quite the same story in El Paso, <laughs> but. Um, but no, it wasn't really. You know, I, it's, it's my favorite book. It's, I remember when I was in the 10th grade, this probably says a lot about me. Um, I was in a creative writing class, and my teacher, Miss White Knight, came to me and said, she saw all the, all the writing I did was very vulgar and very um, 
um, either phallic or, you know, uh, uh, obsessed with shitting or something. And, and I remember like just kind of exuding not necessarily just a sense of humor, but I could write very dramatic things about taking a shit. And, and she came to me and said, okay, enough of that. Uh, re- refocus that into something that can, you know, be a little bit more acceptable for a public school education. And, and she introduced me to the book. She said, have you read A Confederative Dunce? I think you'll really like it. Uh, and I think it was a real ins- inspiration of, of uh, something that, that, that does indulge in the crude and the crass, but also has enough just real intellect behind it and, and sophistication behind it that you don't, you don't necessarily get lost in uh, those elements. All right. Thank you very much. Good talking to you guys. Thank you very much, David. Okay, so it's movie news time. Time for the movie news fanfare. Movie news. <laughs> That's it needs work. We're on a budget, frankly. Sounds uh, like a drum, I think. Yeah. <laughs> movie news. Helen. Hi. Um, I have uh, very exciting news this week, um, or r- rather devastating news. Uh, Charlie Hunnam has, steady, pulled out of Fifty Shades of Grey. Apparently, he had been cast as Christian Grey, who is, of course, the romantic lead of the rather smutty adaptation, but will no longer be in it. Apparently, there was some kind of scheduling clash which did not allow him time to adequately prepare for the role of Christian Grey. What preparation that might have been, I would not care to comment or speculate upon, but I'm sure Chris will. (laughs) I'm trying not to. Well done, you. I think you're really growing as a person. I'm turning over a new leaf. (laughs) Yeah. Well. Your face is literally turning a shade of crimson at the moment. <laughs> Just hold it in, Chris. It's an old situation where somebody's saying, Sons of Anarchy, that's a TV show. It's a TV show I've been in for years now. Yeah. I'm going to do that. That's what I'm more interested in. I really care about that. I want to do that. So TV's coming first. Is this the sort of thing that, that damages a relationship with the studio? Um, one would hope not. It obviously depends on, on you know the details of what's going on and why, which we don't know at this point and probably will never because people really don't like talking about this kind of thing when they don't do it the, the story goes he was not prepared for the sort of fan reaction there had been a, a massive campaign for Matt Bomer to be cast in the role and there was a lot of just craziness on the internets when when Charlie Hunnam was cast and I think he, it just caught him unawares I don't think he's ever been involved in anything quite so sort of prematurely high profile if you will I think he had visions of his career going the way that Robert Pattinson's has gone and I think that's something of a nightmare for Hunnam because he's quite a quiet and a private guy Isn't Matt Bomer the guy in charge of the Republicans in Congress? That's John Boner Matt Bomer is the extraordinarily handsome lead in White Collar It's interesting though because I'm trying to treat this story really really seriously as you know (laughs) and it, it strikes me that there wasn't the same uproar when Charlie Hunnam got the uh, Pacific Rim job. Well, that was, of course, an original property, Chris, whereas this is an adaptation. You're absolutely right. That's the difference. I know. Speaking of Pacific Rim, I do actually have a story about that, which is Guillermo del Toro, who directed it, is already writing the sequel. And knowing Guillermo del Toro, he's probably finished it. Uh, He is writing it again with the original. The person who first came up with this idea was a guy called Travis Beecham. That's right. And... They co-wrote it together. They kind of he came up with the idea. He he pitched it to Del Toro, and they kind of worked on it together to create what would eventually become the the film. Uh, the thing is about this idea. I don't want to spoil Pacific Rim for anybody, but the ending is pretty definitive. Phil doesn't know because he left. He was sleepwalking out. Uh, but <laughs> right. this one hulking like a giant robot. Uh, but this 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 one's a tricky one. Like, is it going to really be justified in being called Pacific Rim, the second one? If that makes any sense. 
I would like it to be called Atlantic Rim. Unfortunately, that's already taken by the <laughs> Asylum Studio, who have made Atlantic Rim. And if it can't be called Atlantic Rim, that means we're not going to get a British Jaeger. And we were asking on Twitter, what should the British Jaeger be called? And it turns out quite a few people have already had this discussion. And our favourite one that we saw suggested was Tactical Chunder. That is the greatest name. <laughs> another one was called Replacement Bus. <laughs> That's my favourite. And here's another good one. Tesco Metro. <laughs> Tesco Metro does sound like a Jaeger. If you put it next That's to Gypsy fantastic. Danger, you go, yeah, that's just as sensible. I'm, I'm OK amazing. with that. I would uh, like somebody to do one of those, you know, call sign, you know, Alpha Papa type stuff, but for Britain. So it would be Tesco would stand for T and Metro would stand for M. I think we just, need some serious money for product placement here. Just, Other supermarkets are available. Right. Oh, yeah. We just thought what, staggers Express, in yeah. late to the battle with a can of like giant lager <laughs> in its hand, <laughs> wading in, burps, throws a glass yeah. in a fest. <laughs> I'd be very interested to see what happens with the sequel in the world that Guillermo was building. And I quite like the fact that it ended fairly definitively and didn't leave lots of threads hanging for a sequel like a lot of films do. You know, just, uh, you all right, Phil? <laughs> just... He's you okay? That's a good chunder. <laughs> isn't it? We should perhaps explain to American listeners: chunder means uh, to puke in yes. your language. And uh, a Tesco Metro <laughs> is a sickening sex act. Phil, we got. It's not as good. That, that was great. I really enjoyed that one. Uh, it's not necessarily as. There's no tactical chunder in no, your story. No, so I've got no. That's nothing as good as that. But it is. It's good. It's exciting if you like Doctor Who, if you are a Whovian, um, because. Ben Wheatley has just confirmed that he will be directing a couple of episodes of Doctor Who. We were talking about directors who have a decent strike record. He is three films, 12 stars in total from Empire. Um, he's a big Doctor Who fan from back in the day. He's come out and already announced that Tom Baker is his man, that he'll be directing Peter Capaldi, obviously. He's not doing the Christmas special, but he's, he's directing two episodes that'll be at the beginning of the next season, next year. I think it's the first two, isn't it? First couple, yeah. So that the, the, um, the uh, will have happened. The, basically the proper introduction to Capaldi because we're told that essentially this isn't um, I don't think this can be a spoiler it's all over the everything um, Matt Smith will bow out at the end of presumably of the Christmas special this year Peter Capaldi will appear that will presumably essentially be just his re- regeneration and not much further um, and so Wheatley will really get to set the tone you would imagine for Capaldi's Doctorhood yes I think I think it would be fun I mean he's a fan so that's good news for mm-hmm. Doctor Who fans he's a very talented filmmaker obviously he's funny he's got a dark sensibility he's got a good team around him cinematographer etc uh, and uh, Steve Oram can play the uh, the master <laughs> that would be great casting that would be amazing he'll certainly so, have us all hiding behind the sofa again won't he down TARDIS the sonic hammer exterminate list mm-hmm. I'm out that's all we've got a TARDIS in England a TARDIS in England a doctor in England a doctor in England yeah I'm, I'm kind of done yeah. Anyone else got anything else? Uh, I just wrote down Carapod. Carapod. <laughs> <laughs> also, worth mentioning that Ben Wheatley has BBC Pass. He's directed some sketch shows for the Beeb, so this isn't the first time he's done television for the BBC. Uh, so he knows where it is when he gets to get there. <laughs> Except they keep did. moving it. It's like the TARDIS. It's like you go to Shepherd's Bush, it's not there anymore. That's true. It's in Manchester or somewhere. <laughs> Cardiff is is Cardiff Doctor Who. They've moved Manchester base. to Cardiff. Yes, they've moved Manchester to Cardiff for Doctor Who's home base. Unbelievable. It all fits in the TARDIS, presumably. Yeah, there bigger on the See, inside. I know my Doctor Who stuff. Yeah, I know. Wow, amazing. Okay, time for another interview now. With Halloween just around the corner, it's a good time for Chucky, the killer doll that was first seen in Child's Play back in the 80s and its myriad sequels to return. He does so in Curse of Chucky, a sequel slash reboot written and directed by Don Mancini, the creator of Child's Play and starring Fiona Dourif, the daughter of Brad Dourif, who, of course, 
voices Chucky. They came to London recently and talked to me. Chucky, sadly, couldn't make it. He was at Hamley's hitting on some hot dolls. Enjoy. So, uh, Fiona, Don, welcome to the podcast. Uh, it's been almost ten years since... Yes. Uh, Chucky years. was yeah nine years uh, since Not Chucky was on the age me more than we <laughs> <laughs> was last on the big screen uh, was uh, why the gap why so why so long has it taken a long time to get this one off well, the, off the ground my my partner and I David Kirshner who's the producer on all of the movies mm. we had for a while been trying to get a a remake of the original movie off the ground because you know how for a while that that's what's was in vogue in in the horror world. Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday mm. the 13th, et cetera, et cetera, all those remakes. And so that's what we were trying to do. But we did the first movie in back in 88 at MGM and all the subsequent movies at Universal. So consequently, all of the rights to the first movie are jointly held between the two studios. And that is just a legal nightmare. Yes. And so, you know, lawyers and trying to work their way through that for two or three years. And finally, David and I realized that we would just grow old and die waiting for that to happen. <laughs> and, but, you know, also, I think the vogue for the remakes kind of passed anyway. Yeah. Because, you know, as a horror fan, I, I saw all of those movies and enjoyed them to varying degrees. But, you know, the it, it's just we know those stories. It's like even with, you know, the first Andrew Garfield Spider-Man, you know, telling the origin story again. It just it's so overly familiar that um, I, I actually... I'm happy with the way things turned out for Chucky because what we've done instead is to do a movie that is technically a sequel mm-hmm. and it you know it 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 fits into the canon of the entire franchise and follows on to all the mythology that has been piling up for the last 25 years but it is a tonal reboot okay uh, you know tonally we go back to the straightforward scares of the original movie at okay. least that's the the intention so did you ever have uh, an idea uh, following Seed of Chucky to continue that storyline and, and that, that tone? Did you ever have anything lined up? Um, only in the that I want and I remain hopeful about doing a musical of Chucky someday because I just think that that would be hilarious and I love musicals. I mean, not even necessarily a movie. I mean, I think like Ch- Bride, I think Bride of Chucky as a story le- would lend itself really well to a, a stage musical. That would be great. Um, but that aside, I felt like we had sort of, between Bride and Seed, sort of mined the potential for you know, loopy, meta campy laughs which you know I I think was very successful in Bride controversially less so depends on who you ask about (laughs) Seed although I'm really happy to find here I mean just we've been doing press today that is just like a lot a lot of we found this in Montreal as well didn't we that a lot a lot of I think I think that like film geeks like us and film you know aficionados critics they had a bigger appreciation for it maybe than than the audience yeah. did for Seed. Although, and I get so defensive on this topic, but one of the things that I always say when people say like, oh, how did you feel when Seed bombed? It's like, well, Pulitzer Prize winning film critic Wesley Morris <laughs> loved the movie. <laughs> so it was good enough for him. Why isn't it good uh, enough for you? Also, I think it gets more attention at festivals and it has like more of a cult following than maybe all the rest of them. Is, or maybe not. 
not like the franchise itself, but more like, than but more than Bride, it has. I mean, definitely, it's one that Jennifer. Tilly and I have dined out on the most. <laughs> it's like we've gotten invited to a number of festivals with that movie over the years. And a couple of years ago, we went to San Francisco and they had a screening. Um, was it? It wasn't at the Castro. The, this there, there's this uh, a drag queen named Peaches Christ, uh-huh. and <laughs> usually I know she's great. <laughs> I, I will show you the pictures on my phone. I have it later. Okay. Um, where anyway, she she hosts these screenings of movies, and 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 they called and asked, did Jennifer and I want to come up for a, a seat of Chucky screening? And we said, hell yeah! And so we came and just to see that movie. And if you know the movie, you know how much fun it would be to see it with an audience full of drag queens, because that's what it was. And it was the most fun experience I had watching that movie. So anyway, Seed seems to have have lived on. And, you know, (laughs) even though it was not the most successful of them, it was more successful than Child's Play 3, though. Uh-uh. Yeah, but but going back to Curse of Chucky, uh, Fiona. Hi. How did you get involved? Is it, is it literally <laughs> just does it run the family now? Is this? Well, is this I it? hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I I was um I don't know I I I was forwarded the script and given the chance to audition and uh, auditioned for the bitchy sister, mm-hmm. which um I usually have more likelihood of getting cast at. Um, and then, you know, just auditioned for the lead um, and then was told to put on more makeup and maybe try to look softer and prettier and go back and audition. And then I got it and I was through the moon excited. I can't even ex- I couldn't possibly articulate. how. Well, and just I to be was. clear, it wasn't. That direction wasn't coming from me. That you had to come back and be prettier. They were just like, and hey, just that's be like a, a very, little prettier. It's a very no. typical studio executive. Yeah, thing, yeah, you know? and I and I knew that, that they were talking about. I, um, and uh, yeah, and here mm. I am. So very it, excited in it, London. Is this something growing up? Did you, you know? Did you take notice that your your dad was doing the voiceover for? The, for these oh. movies, was this a big thing in your household? <laughs> the coolest thing about dating me in high school uh, was that I was the seat of Chucky. Like, full, <laughs> it was the best thing about me. Um, and we have a Chucky doll in the corner of our of our living room and have our whole life. And now I have one, which is great. Um, and my my birthday is the night before Halloween, or the witch's <laughs> night. So my dad would make a cameo once a year and only once a year doing Chucky's voice um, for Halloween parties. It's just, I, I mean, I, I, it was just so, it's so cool that I get to be associated with it as an adult. I'm so, so grateful and excited and happy to be here in London. Yeah. And Don and, and I get along really well. It's really good. It's really cool. And, and, and in terms of how Brad works, is he very much, does he come on in post? And do the voice or no? Is he ever, no, is he it's ever... done. It's well, he does come. We we start in pre-production. It's done like an animated movie. You put you know the vocal tracks down, and then and we have a video camera shooting him in the booth doing that, so that the puppeteers later when we're on set they can sometimes subtly mimic Brad's expressions and put that into the doll. Okay. So you know we we record all the dialogue, then we edit the dialogue because sometimes you know if he has a speech, I'll take you know, a sentence from take one, then another sentence from take two, but the last word is from take seven, you know, and so it can be cobbled together like that sometimes. Um, And all that's put into a computer and, you know, when we're on set, Chucky is, you know, Chucky's alive. I mean, Chucky's, it's always been an animatronic 
character and mm-hmm. I hope always will rather than going the CGI route which though every time we make one of these movies that question comes up I'm sure it does but um, it, it it's just it's vital that he be there for the actors to respond to but also I I think that it would be it would just be wrong for him to be CGI because it wouldn't just wouldn't look right even if you could we could afford which we couldn't the very best CGI you you would have to build in that kind of herky jerky movement that yeah. he has because that's yeah. part of the appeal and part of the creepiness of a doll that comes to life so it wouldn't be cost effective anyway yeah to absolutely. do that so Fiona so you're actually listening to your dad's voice yeah. on set then yeah that must be slightly um, surreal I'm guessing well uh, the main scene that that happens with is the climax and before we were going to shoot it I actually had some concerns about because uh, it's just me and him it's mm. a face off um, and we have a back and forth conversation and I actually asked Don if it would be possible to have somebody uh, read it instead of listening to my dad and he said no <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd never I'd never gotten that request ever in you know all the years of doing this movie people it's like oh my god the doll's actually there and we hear him on set and it's just like working with an actor and that's just delightful and yeah, helps yeah. the actor's performance and here is the first time an actor saying can we turn Chucky off can we just <laughs> can switch we, him off just, no. No. no no so but I just like said well whatever you know Freudian you know father daughter (laughs) angsty thing that you're dealing with there just use it (laughs) you know yeah the complicated thing is that I have a really really good relationship with my dad my dad I think is just one of the best people uh, to have ever been um, and I get I on some level actually the, the it's the voice is a separation of his it's not how he yeah, talks yeah. but you can definitely hear him and um, <laughs> there there was an element of familiarity sort of that uh, that was ended up helping it be creepier somehow and and the whole thing is so not cerebral so we'll just keep it there <laughs> of course I've just realized as well you, know, you are the seed of Chucky you are the dad of Chucky so essentially you are Fiona's grandfather yes and yeah. thank you for reminding me yeah. of the age difference between us did you hear my cackle I just cackled. I love that I just wanted that to let that amazing. run and <laughs> say nothing else Don I think you are the creator of Chucky were you on set all the way through Child's Play, were you the writer on set, and did you? In fact, I was not on set on okay. the first one because that happened during the right the Writers Guild strike of 1988. <laughs> okay. Yes, so I wasn't on set for that movie. Um, you know, Tom Holland, who directed that movie, he and he made revisions to the script. So I didn't really. I mean, I read the script before I saw the first cut of the movie, but it was at that point, like in the summer of '88, that David Kirshner you know, showed me the first cut. And at that point, certainly was very gracious of him to even solicit my opinion because that doesn't often happen in Hollywood, even to veteran writers, let alone, you know, I was very young at that point and still in school. Um, But I really appreciated that. And I, I think that David, you know, saw that, you know, my perspective having created it and written the original script, but then not having been present to make the movie that I had a, 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 interesting valuable perspective on it mm. and so it came you know that I so I was able to come into in post on that movie and sort of offer my two cents for what it was worth and you know happily that movie turned out well and was successful and then um, David you know asked me to write the sequel as well you know in Hollywood it's 
you know, people often say, oh, it's it's great that it's so rare that you see like that the creator of a franchise will be around for the entire run of the film. And I for all of the films and I'm I, I think it I, I imagine that maybe Wes Craven might have liked that opportunity, yeah. you know, yeah. or Sean Cunningham might have liked that opportunity. So I feel very fortunate that David, you know, kept me around because they didn't have to. I mean, everybody is replaceable. Uh, in Don's original skip script for Child's Play, none of the voodoo stuff was there. Oh, really? Yeah, it was. Um, and I'm not going to be able to do this as well as you, Don. In in the original script, Chucky, rather than being possessed by a serial killer's soul, Chucky was actually the manifestation of the little boy's id and his unconscious. And the doll came to life in a different way, rather than the the voodoo chant. One of in my original script, one of the features of the good guy dolls was that they had fake blood in them. They just like had this red substance in it, so that when a kid is playing with the doll, if he drops it, the latex skin was designed to break easily, okay. so then it would bleed. Okay. And then you have to go out and buy the good guy's band aid because again, this was all part of the satire <laughs> of marketing and yeah. advertising, and you know, mm-hmm. one product it just like a domino effect yeah. leads you'd have to buy all these other ones. So the little kid being lonely, no father around Chucky is his best friend in a rite of brotherhood he cuts their thumbs and mixes their blood together that blood brother ritual and it's thereafter that Chucky comes to life Mm. and in the script he's specifically going after the little boy's enemies that you know the idea being that and I played with the audience longer in in my script than was in the final film the question of whether or not Chucky was actually alive or Mm. was this little boy a sociopath was an open question longer in the film. The scene with when the mom finds the package of unopened batteries, which is proof that Chucky's alive, that happened a little bit later okay. in my script. Anyway, but but Tom Holland changed this and 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 added the voodoo stuff, which I've you know I I've never been crazy about that, but obviously I can't be objective about it. You know, I know I talk to plenty of people who think it's it's great, but I have to say that it was very gratifying to turn that into a joke in Bride of Chucky. You know, when Jennifer Tilly is reading from Voodoo for Dummies, because it always just seems silly to me. You know, and then in that and that scene in the first movie where Chucky goes to confront his voodoo doctor yes. mentor. Yes. Yeah. Do you remember that? You I know, it's know, just yeah. like I, I. I mean, I. I, sh- I Tom. I shouldn't slag off Tom Holland, who did it. I was very excited. Tom Holland was going to direct that movie because at that point, you know, I was a fan of of Psycho Two and Fright Night. I was very excited. Um, and he did a great job with Child's Play. This is just my personal opinion. I thought that that scene was was kind of dopey you know because you know with this guy going you are an abomination chucky you have used everything i taught you for evil and you must be stopped and then he goes to the phone i don't know if you're like he's good and it's so but the chucky of course stops him but it's like it's so funny to imagine what that conversation would be you call 911 and so like there there's a doll here and it's just it just opened up so much a can of worms for me that, that I, so i uh, Again, I'm not objective about it, but um, 
the the voodoo was not by me. <laughs> also, and the voodoo allowed Mr. Brad Dourif to be involved. That's true. So that's, that's true. Really the whole cool. idea that he was yeah. the serial killer, Charles Lee Ray. So Listen. we'll give due credit to Tom Holland for that too. But also David Kirshner. I think David. The name Charles Lee Ray, mm. I think, was was from David Kirshner because it's oh, really? an, yeah, it's an amalgamation of killers that he was afraid of as a child. Charles Manson, Lee Harvey Oswald, and James Earl Ray. Okay, that's where the name Charles Lee Ray comes from. And uh, Fiona, have you watched a film with your dad yet, or is that in the future? Uh, I, I have watched Curse with My Dad. Mm-hmm. I have watched Curse with My Dad, which was uh, pretty scary. I showed it to them. Actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was really... I showed them an early cut. Um, I... I usually don't believe anything my dad says when it comes to my performance because he's always like, you're great, you're better than, you're fantastic at everything I do. Um, but it was nerve-wracking. I hope I do this justice. I'm so grateful for it. That's Fantastic. it. She did it justice. I hope Excellent. so. I did. Um, on I a did, note, it's a good note in which to end, guys. Fiona, <laughs> Don, Thank thanks very much for coming in. Thank you for Thank having you. us. Thank you. Thank you. We should mention, actually, for anybody who enjoyed that interview, that Chucky himself makes an appearance in, in your masterwork, Chris, if I do say so. Or for people who didn't enjoy it. Or Just for anybody. Did, yeah, all people should know that uh, you are a complete maniac and uh, wrote a feature for the website, which will be up early next week, mm-hmm. probably about Tuesday, <clears throat> called the 666 mm-hmm. Greatest Horror Characters. Of all time. Of all time. Yeah. Going back to a film of 1913, I think was the earliest one. It's covering 100 one? years of movie history. It's mental. Uh, it is 40,000 words long. It, it could is. have been your dissertation. And yet you just wrote it on a whim. Yes. Uh, it is uh, partially compiled by reader votes, uh, but we didn't have 666 characters uh, in the vote. And uh, I, a small panel of, of Empire's horror experts, myself, Simon Crook and Owen Williams, uh, came together, put our heads together and came up with this list. It has consumed my life for the last few months. Uh, but yeah, please do check it out. It is exhaustive. It is a list of, there's some obvious choices in there there are some choices I think may even surprise really really diehard horror fans so do go and check it out if you can it's up on the website as of Tuesday about Tuesday about Tuesday and it will also I think be available in case you don't have the time to to plow through the website it might be available as well in a PDF I think so you can take it with you on your portable reading device so there you go 666 greatest horror movie characters of all time if I ever suggest anything as ambitious as that again just shoot me don't oh believe me I will please but do enjoy reading it as much as I enjoyed (laughs) writing it and researching it okay so let's move on now to the reviews portion of the show as per tradition let's start with Captain Phillips the latest true life thriller from the brilliant Paul Greengrass this one is about the hijacking of the container ship Maersk Alabama in 2009 by four Somalian pirates and the four day crisis that unfolded with the ship's captain Richard Phillips a hostage at its centre Tom Hanks stars as Captain Phillips and what do we think of this latest slice of fried green grass we thought this was pretty darn fantastic actually um, it's one of the most tense and absolutely kind of riveting films um, I've seen in, in well recently I've seen several but before that <laughs> I hadn't seen any in quite a long time um, this is genuinely even if even though you know roughly how it turns out it is absolutely riveting from start to finish you are absolutely on the edge of your seat I've said this before but there was a moment when somebody broke a window to let some air into the lifeboat and I swear I felt a gust of wind in my face because I was just so caught up in the whole thing it was quite again <laughs> it could have been but uh, honestly it was it, it's an absolutely brilliant performance from from Tom Hanks um, as Captain Phillips because he doesn't you know he doesn't overplay it it's very dialed back it's very 
kind of restrained in many ways. Um, and, and you know, it's, it's just kind of a good man trying to get through extraordinary circumstances. But what I think Greengrass in particular does brilliantly is he gives the humanity um, of the pirates themselves, of the Somalis, a, a real kind of three-dimensional effect which means that you care about them as well Mm. and that's where a lot of I think the tension comes from you're wishing the best for these guys and for them to find some way out of this impossible situation as much almost as you care about Captain Phillips himself Well I think he looks at things with a journalistic eye Mm. and so he doesn't necessarily judge and he actually kind of did the same thing in 1993 Mm. which is interesting because obviously most people would be lining up to condemn the hijackers and he does condemn the hijackers absolutely does but what he does is also shows them as human beings. Yeah. And so there's a really interesting sequence in 1993 where the uh, passengers are praying to God and then he shows the hijackers praying to their God as well. And it was a nice little point that we're all essentially woven from the same cloth. Um, and he does that he does that very much in Captain Phillips as well where he, he, sits, he goes to some lengths to set out a context uh, mm. for the Somalian pirates. Yeah. They're not just the faceless baddos that we saw, for example, in the beginning of The Expendables. Uh, <laughs> you know, there is a reason why they're doing this, particularly uh, the lead um, Somalian pirate Muse, played by the brilliant Barkat Abdi. Um, and they, he, you know, Paul Greengrass found these guys in casting calls in Minneapolis and Boston, and I think even London. You know, with nine hundred people turning up to these these casting calls, and to find these four guys are. It's like needle and hairstyle. Well, he, he actually ended up. I mean, he did cast d- those casting calls all over, but ended up with four guys who were friends and who were working together mm. to kind of workshop these these parts as they went from audition to audition, which I think really shows because they work brilliantly together. You get a sense that each has his own sort of that they are they are a real group that each has his function in the group and each has a, a group dynamic with mm. each other, and I think that really comes across brilliantly. I think one one thing that's interesting about the film is that there's no sense really at any point that there's a movie being imposed upon the events. There is a little bit. One of the Somalian pirates is pretty much straight out evil. Uh, <laughs> but apart from that, he is very dastardly and he goes psycho and a bit loco. And I, you, you feel I've kind of seen that a little bit. I wonder if that's a bit of a movie convention being imposed upon the plot. But otherwise, he strips away any movie convention. A movie like this normally, most directors, 99 directors out of 100, would cut back and forth between the rescue attempt and say Catherine Keener who plays his wife and she is glimpsed in a two minute scene at the beginning of the movie yeah. and she's not mentioned apart from a, an email that Captain Phillips sends to her about halfway through she's not seen glimpsed or referenced again in the in the rest of the film and I love that I love mm-hmm. the fact that Paul Greengrass strips his story of any sentiment completely and, and, and there's, a, there's an amazing scene towards the end right at the very very end which is just absolutely fantastic and really full of emotion and uh, and uh, it's it's almost transcendent in a way and I think yeah. if if Tom Hanks wins the Oscar for this as uh, he may well do although Chiwetel Ejiofor I think is the favourite at the moment uh, I think it'll be because of that mm. scene it will be I think absolutely I mean it's a, yeah it's an interesting it's an interesting job to contrast this with say Apollo th- uh, 13 which did co- cut back and forth to the families yes worrying and biting their fingernails back home and you really don't yeah. need it in this I, th- I think in, in this case it would actually break up the tension in a way that would actually be counterproductive because you are in that boat with them but it really does kind of bring some stuff home to you at the same time as telling this great adventure story yeah I think Apollo 13 is an interesting sort of touch point really and I guess it shows that Ron Howard comes from a slightly more maybe you know pure 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 cinema background or pure entertainment background and Paul Greengrass and Barry Aykroyd his DP are journalistic and they look to you know films like Battle of Algiers for inspiration yeah and and, but they're they're similar stories you know very claustrophobic it must have been pretty hellish to shoot you can feel that you can feel the sweat and you can feel the blood in it and uh, it's um it's elemental it's a really really tremendous film I thought does this contain Greengrass's shakiness to an extreme level 
Not really. I mean, there's some there's some movement of the camera just because they're at sea. Uh, Ackroyd was literally there in this tiny lifeboat with a camera, so it, naturally there's some movement. Um, I can understand why you know our question earlier. Uh, you know, said that they felt seasick watching it. You, you might get a tiny bit of that, but it's it's much more the kind of lockdown. And, and Grigoras himself talked, I think, a little bit about not wanting to make it too handheldy uh, in a way that some of the you know chase scenes in Bourne were. Mm. What about um, the stuff? <coughs> and what about the stuff I've read in the Hollywood Reporter about this story of Captain Phillips not necessarily being what actually happened? Are we ignoring that? How do we feel about I, that? I think that uh, story is uh, largely a case of sour grapes yeah. on the on the part of crew members who have not had a film made about them or not had a best-selling book result from their adventures. And notably, they're, they're anonymous. Um, and a, a lawsuit was launched a few years ago by members of the crew who alleged that perhaps Captain Phillips didn't behave in the best way or the most um, uh, professional way and maybe put them in danger. And that lawsuit didn't come to anything. And Paul Greengrass last week, I did a, as well as the podcast interview we, we did with him here, I did a, an interview with him at the Apple Store and, and someone asked him that, that, that very, very question. And he said, uh, basically, I, I did a lot of research into that story because that meant a lot to me. If that story had had a modicum of truth, I probably wouldn't have been able to do the film. But it didn't come to anything. We, lo- we looked into it and I'm satisfied that what we've got on, on screen is the truth or 99% of it. But yeah, I think you're, I think you're going to get that with any film. You're going to get that. You know, Twelve Years a Slave. I was reading today that people are now coming out and going, "Well, that was a true story." But now people are refuting the version of events in that movie. You're going to get that with any true story. Uh, I think, sadly. The, the other thing uh, about that is, I think you know, the, the film does show some tension with some members of the crew early on that they think he's a bit of a yeah. stickler, that they think he's a bit of a fuddy duddy. Um, so it's not a, it's not a one dimensional portrait of of Captain Phillips as this shining hero. It's it's you know, I think it, it feels like a rounded version. Of oh the man. God, no! Yeah. The other point to make is that I think that there's been quite a few films recently have been picked up on oh this isn't realistic and we'll talk about it in a couple of weeks with Gravity people have been picking up details of that even uh, as, as great a brain as Neil deGrasse Tyson that only goes so far I think as, as a means of film uh, judgement I think yes realism is one thing you can pick films up on but getting tiny details done in a certain way isn't the biggest and most important thing that a film can do I'd say it's well, case by case really yeah. yeah, I think I think the key the key here is time frame I mean, as I said at the beginning of the at the introduction of, of Captain Phillips this was a four day ordeal this is a two hour film 12 years a slave 12 years no it's a two hour film so you have to make concessions you have to condense things alright so we move on so five stars for Captain Phillips five stars which I believe is a recommendation just a tiny tad of a one yes okay and speaking of recommendations it's Escape Plan <laughs> In which Sly Stallone plays the world's foremost escape artist, Ray Breslin. He can break out of any prison, any prison at all, until he's thrown into one from which escape is impossible. Uh, that is, until he enlists the help of wily old lag Arnold Schwarzenegger, Stallone and Schwarzenegger, together, again, at last, uh, as the two men come together and try and bust their way out of the 1980s. So, what do we make of this? Well, I think one line that really summed it up for me was um, when they were sort of in the prison, they were planning this sort of really complex heist to get out, and um, Arnie turns to Sly and says, you don't look that smart, 
Um, that was kind <laughs> of the point where I went, yeah, I agree. Um, and, you know, from Stallone's point of view, he just looked so bored throughout the film, so vacant, really didn't put much into it. Arnie, on the other hand, really gave it his all. Uh, nice to see him back. Wasn't the best, but, you know, there was that nice moment when he goes a bit mental and speaks a lot of German, which I enjoyed. And there were a few nice throwbacks to um, when these two were back in there, in the good days, in the pomp. Um, you know, some quippy lines and some nice action scenes with guns, but largely it was a, a bit of a mess. A, a nice sort of concept that was just sort of clunkily executed. Yes, I mean, listen, it's the first time they've properly been together in the sense that they were on screen in The Expendables together for minutes at a time. And this is like a proper film where they are together for most of the running time, I think it's probably fair to say. The problem for me is that Sly Stallone is the lead and actually Arnie's the better character and the, and the better actor, actually, in the film. He is, he is far more fun here. Um, Stallone is stuck going through a rather routine process, I think, of, you know, just... Uh, being the guy who's he's just he's the guy that's that's his thing in the whole film he is the total world expert on escaping from prisons no one can totally match him and he even has a ridiculous backstory explaining why it's so important to him to escape from prisons which just kind of lost me a little bit um, but he gets thrown into this particular one overseen by Jim Caviezel and uh, rather forcibly befriended by Arnold Schwarzenegger who just won't give up on him. Like Stallone is incredibly surly and unfriendly and, and Schwarzenegger just keeps being nice to him and helping him out. Honestly, you, you, there are no big surprises in this film, frankly, between the two of them and between their, their plans. <laughs> There are two big twists in this movie that you can see coming a mile away. And in fact, one of them, Stallone says, I didn't see that coming. I did not see that coming. And the whole audience goes, we did. (laughs) Yeah, precisely. Yeah, I would say I I kind of agree with that. This is the best of the Stallone Schwarzenegger movies. And it's certainly the best that that Arnie has been on the big screen for a long time. I'm not just meaning since, I don't just mean since his comeback. I mean, for a long, long time. He is really, really good in this film. And I, I would recommend uh, for fans of, of Schwarzenegger from the 1980s and for those people, and I'm one of them, who think that, hey, you know what? He's actually not bad at this acting gig when he gets a chance, when he gets the right director and, and the right role. Yeah. Uh, I really like him in Predator, you know, James Cameron movies, etc., etc. And he's really good in this film. Real sense of, of fun. As you said, Lee, when he, was, when he uh, goes a bit berserk and starts yelling in German. Uh, it's just it's a joy to behold uh, otherwise the film's a bit clunky it's a bit soulless it's a bit characterless it's uh, it's a movie I, I think built by people who maybe have seen action movies made in the 1980s but have no understanding of, of why they were so good or great and also it has Finney Jones does he run through a wall at any point shouting <laughs> the word bitch Sadly, no, but no. he might as well, to be perfectly honest. He's dressed no. somewhat similarly, he just is missing the helmet. It's one of those movies, it's a, it's a, it's a movie about the, uh, a prison which is uh, inescapable, uh, and it's the ultimate high-tech prison, and everything works until the plot requires it not to work, and for it not to be high-tech. And yeah. I just wish it had a little bit more smarts about it. Uh, but, you know, it's... It's okay, I guess. It's got some decent stuff. We gave it two stars, which isn't really. It's more yeah. of a kind of catch it and video it was, kind it of was, thing. It was a, like it was a good two it's stars. A, it wasn't like a, a really low two stars, you know. Yeah. Uh, for movie. five minutes, yeah. For five minutes, I flirted with three, and then it just didn't feel like a three star film. It's it, but it's you know, if it was a Friday night and you were tired and you couldn't quite be bothered with anything requiring your brain to be switched on, this would totally be a film to watch. Yeah, but yeah, two stars. Check it out on DVD. 
uh, especially if you're Stallone or Schwarzenegger completist okay now let's talk uh, Prince Avalanche I thought you'd better say check it out on DVD especially if you're Stallone or Schwarzenegger <laughs> yes if you are if you are Arnold or Sly and I know you listen so thanks guys uh, please do check out your own movie um, if you're adrift at sea in a lifeboat <laughs> yes. and you've got literally no other films don't miss it <laughs> it is another film at sea which is actually. a recommendation yeah. okay so two stars for Escape Plan back to Prince Avalanche what I would say about Prince Avalanche in the nicest possible meaning of the words that it feels like a debut film and it has such a freshness and a and a and a and a, and a really sort of dry wit to it underneath the surface you have to scratch a bit but it's there it's a, it's a funny film it's a film that's that's obviously quite personal to David Gordon Green it's set in an unusual environment which is the aftermath of a big forest fire a real life fire that took place in Texas in the 80s so it's a period piece but because it's just because it's just Emil Hirsch and Paul Rudd and and they're charged with basically remarking the roads that's all they do they just wheel this kind of yellow paint marker along the roads and they've got a project to do and it's just the two of them talking and uh, if there's a wrinkle it's that Rudd is going out with Emil, Emil Hirsch's sister so that you have the correspondence over these weeks that they're together in the wilderness and surrounded by these burnt out husks of trees so it's a kind of a desolate landscape but it's a, it's a very human, very warm movie, and it's funny, and it just catches up on you. You, could, you I, mean, I wasn't sitting there watching it thinking, "Wow, this is an absolutely cracking film." But you come out of it, and it just suddenly, you know, it stays with you. It has a, it has some interesting things to say, um, which we, I won't say now because you have to kind of interpret them for yourself. But about the way that people interact, and about relationships, and about life, and people trying to find meaning in their lives in uh, in a really unusual way in an unusual place and uh, I think um, considering that his last few films The Sitter and uh, Did He Make Your Highness? Yeah And Your Highness which I, I, not, I didn't mention those in the intro but <laughs> Not terrific <laughs> I love did you? No I didn't, I didn't. Oh you didn't yeah. Sorry For obvious reasons I was going to say Remember that No he's, the last couple of films he's made Your Highness and The Sitter have not been brilliant on any level but you know people have have uh, affection for Pineapple Express but this is taking you back to the films that you mentioned yeah. his early stuff I think it's a bit of a it's almost a cross between some of his early stuff you know like Undertow was a much more serious film mm. but it had something of the same landscape about it somehow the same kind of sense of desolation and emptiness um, but this brings in a little bit of the humour of something like Pineapple Express to that kind of setting so it does it feels really lo-fi indie but in a good way and I, we should mention as well his, his next film Joe has been getting great response at, at kind of festivals so this kind of going back to his roots does really seem to have reinvigorated him and, and given him a, a new start I was just going to say one further thing it felt to me in a strange way like a coming of coming of age film for adults almost <laughs> two adults coming yeah. of age which you don't see very often and I like that about it Paul Rudd plays a you know he's not his usual avuncular fun Paul Rudd he's got a he's got a slightly kind of self-loathing streak going on and dodgy moustache as well Emil Hirsch is like a man-child who just wants to party which is a euphemism for you know getting laid as much as possible um, and they're very different characters one's an introvert one's like I say kind of more of a sort of teenage extrovert mm. in adult's clothing um, good character just a really nice character study it's interesting to me you mentioned Paul Rudd uh, I can't believe no one mentioned the Ant-Man rumour yeah, we were rounding up movie news. news so 
Well, that's an interesting one because that rumour was specifically mentioned to people. It said that Paul Rudd and Joseph Gordon-Levitt were first in line for the Ant-Man job. Mm. Joseph Gordon-Levitt specifically denied that last night, Mm -hmm. which I don't know if that casts further doubt on the Paul Rudd rumour or reinforces it. It just confirms Joseph Gordon-Levitt is Ant-Man for me. (laughs) In that sort of same way Michael Bay said, Megatron is not in this movie. Yes, but we we can't consider every denial a confirmation, Chris, that makes the world a crazy place. Can't we? He prefaced his denial with, I own, I'm very honest about these things, so I would be surprised if yeah. if he is lying. If it happens, if Joseph Gordon-Levitt is not in contention, if Paul Rudd as Ant-Man is, is Hank Pym, I think that'd be great. I think he's he's long overdue a really big film. A big, uh, you know, He's a very charming, likeable actor, and I kind of think it's analogous to where Downey was with uh, before he took on Iron Man. Well, so. with, with like mm. less with know, less drugs, less drugs and, and throwing and Nick f- invisible rats out of cars. Yes, <laughs> and, and fewer arrests. I think it's we should make clear at this point, legally speaking. Or the go Oscar. on, go on. It's like yeah, okay. No, like, it's exactly like yeah. Robert Downey's situation. <laughs> so they're doing this by this big burnout forest. Does it end with Emil Hirsch walking into the woods and just dying? <laughs> <laughs> so we give four stars to Prince Avalanche, uh, and that's wrap up this week with uh, enough said which is the latest film from Nicole uh, Holliff Centre. And it's notable, I think, for being not James Gandolfini's last film, but certainly the first film to be released since his tragic death and stars uh, James Gandolfini and Julie Louis-Dreyfus. Mm. And it's a sort of uh, an adult rom-com. You've got an adult comedy and mm. now an adult rom-com, Phil. It's also notable for having a really terrible yellow poster, which looks like <laughs> one of the two leads has done a fart and they're both pretending that it's not them. Um, <laughs> and it's got a quite generic title, but don't let those things put you off because it's really good. I'm sorry, done a fart? <laughs> <laughs> Did a fart? I don't know. What's the correct It verbiage? looks like one of those two characters done a fart. <laughs> yeah, it's in the West Country. It's set in Somerset on a farm. James Gandolfini <laughs> plays a, a Frisian cow farmer. Okay, let, let's bring it back. Let's bring it said. back. <laughs> what do you want from me? Uh, listen, it's a good movie. I what can I say? I really enjoyed this what film. I, she's a she's a very talented filmmaker. A lot of people have compared her to like a chick flick Woody Allen, which I think is really terrible reductive. comparison to me and reductive <laughs> I'm insulted by it Helen Thank I don't you. know how you feel a little it's, insulted yeah she's directed some Gilmore Girls Hooray. Sex in the City Parks and Rec she's done good TV work but her film career is now almost 20 years strong please give terrific her key collaborator is obviously Catherine Keener in her second film of the week uh, she gets more to do in this one than Captain Phillips but she is the third corner of a, of, I guess a love triangle between Gandolfini and, and Dreyfus and there's lovely chemistry between those two leads which really fuels this film Catherine Keener plays the ex-wife of the Gandolfini character and uh, Dreyfus unwittingly becomes friends with her without realising that she's actually going out with her ex-husband so she gets all this stuff second hand from Kina about this guy that she used to be with and then she suddenly she suddenly twigs that the annoying way that he scrapes the he separates the onion out of his guacamole with a tortilla chip it's the same guy and then she starts to mimic some of the ex-wife's complaints so it's it's a kind of a you know how people how you're influenced by other people and she's a slightly in some ways emotionally 
she's not quite or she's not quite there in the whole relationship she's not quite comfortable in it and it explores those things in a really funny way but Gandolfini plays a really funny cuddly cheery Gandolfini rather than you know Waste Disposal Tony Soprano Gandolfini and as I say the two of them have a fantastic sort of static in that you know they fall out they get back together and we gave it four stars I'd highly recommend it if you're in the mood for something a little perhaps a little lighter I wouldn't necessarily say rom-com more of a a kind of a again a character piece what's the Stanley cameo like <laughs> Stanley ca- cameo is it's a good one it's good yeah you not don't tell me but it is good yes okay. they're in bed and he just pops up next to the bed just going through oh, spoiler. And, and does a fart and does a fart you <laughs> literally just told me after I said to you don't tell me what it is yeah. I don't want to know yeah yeah, yeah. you're yeah. a prick oh I'm sorry oh. yeah anyway he turns up with a new cowbell for them I've shed true believers that's what he says that's my Stanley impression anyway moving yeah. on also out this week it's the fantastic Japanese film like Father Like Son from the, the great director Hirokazu Koreeda and we gave that four stars and that of course will only be available in key cities but do check that one out if you can and that is it for the Empire Podcast except for one little thing we usually sign off at this point but you know what let's have another interview shall we yeah it is as we've already discussed Paul Greengrass he's one of the finest directors working today and Helen and I spoke to him recently about all manner of things from Captain Phillips of course to his lost projects including Watchmen and how he feels about his old mucker Jimmy Bond enjoy uh, we're delighted to be joined on the podcast by Paul Greengrass director of Captain Phillips hello sir hello how did it come about for you because you didn't originate this project no nope. um, Sony had it and um Tom was attached and they said, did I want to do it? That was really that simple. And also I had sort of a personal thing. My dad was at sea all his life and was in the Merchant Navy, as we call it. But in America, they call it the Merchant Marine. So I grew up in that world, you know, and uh, that, so I wanted to make a film about those guys. Mm. So, so that was a big part of it, too. Did you see parallels between Captain Phillips as a man and, and, your, and your dad? Not not. Specifically, you know, not not in that way. I mean, he he was at sea, you know, in the forties and fifties. But there there, there are similar. You know, all these guys who go to sea have a sort of similarity, I think, because it's a calling. You know, you do it. And also, I think that those men, and they were all men. There's a few women now, but it's still very male. Are sort of unsung heroes. I think they very you know hardworking people, and they haul the boxes that you know most of the goods that you know keep us all going come on the container ships, actually. They don't go by air. And I think in our country, you know, um, you know, we often remember the Second World War and the contribution that the fighter pilots made and the, you know, soldiers and airmen and all the rest of it. But actually, the merchant navy, the convoy crews were incredibly brave and heroic, you know. So they've always played a vital role. You said there was a calling, but you never felt a calling yourself? <laughs> no, I definitely did not. Yeah. I definitely did, did not. I remember once saying to my... or, or I was giving a speech. My dad was there, and I, I made it. I went into a big riff about how the similarities between making films and and you know running a large ship. You know because you have a crew when you make a film, and you you have to go on a journey towards a destination. So I went into this big riff. You know, trying to say it. Then afterwards, he said, "Well, it's not at all making films. What are you talking about?" Uh, looking at your movies, your last few movies from uh, from Bloody Sunday on through the Bournes. 1993, Greenstone, and now this. There's a common thread that links them all. Obviously, you know, they're, whether they're factually based or, or fictional, they're all very much real-world thrillers. But you've attached yourself in the past, obviously, to Watchmen, uh, Treasure Island, for, uh, for Fantastic Voyage as well. Barely got there. Barely got there. But, 
But it seems to me that you, there's a more fantastical side of you that you'd like to indulge at yes. some point. Is that, is that fair to say? I always sort of say, oh, I really need to do something different. And then, of course, you, you end up drawn to where your natural range is. That can be a good thing and not such a good thing. Mm. You know, I think you've always got to be true to yourself and sing in your own register. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. If you're a if you're a contralto, you we can't do karaoke. Yeah. So no, but you know what I mean. You, <laughs> yeah. you, you, um, but you have to test yourself. I would have loved to have made Watchmen. You know, I definitely would have made that film. And Treasure Island was just a conversation, really. Okay. But Watchmen, I absolutely we went away down the road, and I would have made that film. And um, you know, I'd like to think that you know that that I will find other things to do as you go along. And you know. Um, I mean, you never know what you're going to do. That's the point. You know, I could sit here and say, well, I hope I don't do a true story next, but then it probably will be. So you just don't know. <laughs> you know? But for example, you were one of the few directors who wasn't linked with Star Wars Episode Seven. <laughs> so that's right. Well, they <laughs> yeah. got, but they got JJ. So that was the right <laughs> decision JJ. for them. <laughs> so they, they didn't come calling for you. That's not something I, that I think. Been, uh, I think if you, were, if you were choosing JJ on me, I think you'd go JJ, wouldn't you? Let's be fair. <laughs> I'd love to see a Paul Greengrass Star Wars movie. I think it'd be fantastic. Yeah, I'm not sure they would want to see. <laughs> basically saying all the same stuff you would you know real world locations and no, back to he's, film yeah. He's, yeah. He's, he's brilliant I think I mean I really do I think he's absolutely perfect for that the last time we spoke Paul you said that uh, you hadn't really decided what you wanted to do next and I know the, the trial of Chicago 7 had I haven't, issues and yeah it was, it was they weren't profound issues yeah. it was just it, it, it was one of those projects where it, it had to be a small film you know in the current marketplace you know it's a it's a it's a it's a, um, you know, it's a niche film, a film like that. I don't, you know, you, you wouldn't be sort of... So you have to contain it within a, within a budget. And, you know, it wasn't... You know, we, we all knew that, you know, Stacey and Stephen knew that as well as I did. The point is, A, the screenplay is the screenplay. B, there's a huge number of characters. C, you'd want to cast that up if you're going to make it. And most importantly of all... It's in period, and it's got a huge amount of sort of action. And even though you may be only snippets of it, you're sort of you're, the material isn't isn't going to naturally sit down in a in a small budget. And and that was the problem for me. I, I couldn't sort of get it to a place where I could be comfortable for me. Mm. You know. So and also the uh, the other thing was that it, there had been a film already. Um, which had animated and done a lot of that work. And, and for me, I felt that it was less of a full meal. You know, it wasn't really enough of... There wasn't enough there for me in the end. So are you actively looking at the moment for a new project? Or are I you am. very much focused on Captain Phillips and the I promotional am. tour? I hoping maybe I could be JJ's second unit director. <laughs> <laughs> that would be interesting. Uh, because Memphis is obviously... Again, the last time we spoke, you said that's something that's maybe going to be a couple of years down the line yep. for you. Yep, yep. Yep, I'll definitely make that film. Yeah. That's no doubt about that. But that's not going to be next. I mean, for a, a number of reasons. But but one is just that it doesn't feel quite right that one after this. Mm. But I definitely will make that film. And uh, something I always bring up whenever we speak, pretty much, because it's James Bond. Oh, I thought you were going to be, are you going to make another Bond? <laughs> no, no. Oh, okay. I'm not going to go there. This is going to be the For one what? interview. Oh, you can go there. The one want. interview that we're not going to mention Bond. Um, okay. It's James Bond, because, of course, you famously James. described him to Empire as an imperialist right-wing fuckface, <laughs> which, 
which I always love bringing back up because you yeah. were is it correct me if I'm wrong but were here's you not, the point if I ever do a Bond film <laughs> that's going to be your first question isn't it <laughs> first second and third exactly <laughs> but have it you made your it makes it very hard for me Chris <laughs> makes it very hard because that's what I always think as, hmm be fun but how would I answer that question <laughs> Oh, we all say I'd things in the past to, we regret. Exactly. But have you made your peace with Bond now? Because I noticed you were at the uh, the premiere of Skyfall last year. I never had yeah. a... I've never ha- not had peace with Bond. <laughs> I mean, if you're... Well, listen, there's a jokey answer and a serious answer. The Bourne versus Bond thing was fun and also good for both franchises, I think, in a way. You know, I think that... Well, I would say, and I, I, I think Barbara would agree, I think that... Bourne was very good for Bond, I think is yeah. the reality of it. You know, I think everybody would would acknowledge that. You know, the Bourne franchise came along, and let's be honest, it was it was Doug Lyman's genius to see that there was a room for this new character in that in that area who who felt different and was different to James Bond. You know, what Bourne had a, a commitment to was a one continuing story, not a story ring, you know, not a, a, a single story. And that's the profound difference in the end between Bourne and Bond. Bourne is, was in the secret world, but's now on the run from the secret world and in opposition to it, whereas Bond is a secret agent. He's, yeah. you know, within the system, not without. So I think Bourne's been very good for Bond, and I think it's been hugely impressive the way that you know, the Bond franchise has, has sort of successfully ridden that and then, you know, moved it on. And that comes to the second point, really, which is that the, although my sympathies naturally would be with a Bourne-like character, and they are, mm. um, and I'm very proud of the Bourne franchise because I think it had that role of kind of setting the bar in a new way for both for action, you know, heroes and in that sort of genre of filmmaking. You can't make movies and not utterly admire the Bond franchise. I mean, to be 50 years, all those films through radically different times and styles and fashions, you know, and still manage to to surf the waves and still remain, you know, hugely successful. And you think of the different Bonds. I mean, you think of the Connery Bond and the Roger Moore Bond and, you know, now the and the others in between. Now, Daniel's Bond, they're, they're all different iterations of that same character. Yeah. So so that is a fantastic achievement. So I have no peace to make. I admire... <laughs> no, I, mean, I really <laughs> don't. Okay, no, I good, admire good, good. The, the Bond franchise, and I admire... I think what Daniel's done is... Su- I mean, a supreme achievement, you know. And I think what Sam's done is fantastic, and he's a pal. I think I think have nothing but respect for, you know. Truly. Well, Paul, I'm glad you made your peace, or not peace, you don't have any peace to make, but uh, thanks very much for joining us, Paul Greengrass. Lovely to be here. Thank Thanks. And that is it for this week's Empire Podcast in association with Beyond Two Souls. Join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be joined by Stephen Merchant. Woo! Mr. P.I. Staker himself. Uh, Shane Meadows and Mark Herbert will be in to talk about their Stone Roses documentary, Made of Stone, which is fantastic. And some guy called Harry Sonford. Harry? Harrison. Harrison. Harrison... Harrison Ford. Ford. Harrison Ford! I know! Amazing! Han frickin' Solo, Indiana frickin' Jones, and Dr. frickin' Richard frickin' Kimball will be right here on the Empire Podcast. File under Unmissable. Until then, it is goodbye from Helen. Farewell. It's goodbye from Phil. 
Goodbye. It's goodbye from Ali. Bye. It's goodbye from Lee. Bye. You're natural. And of course, it's goodbye from me. I'm off to do a tactical chunder. See you next week. Bye. Now it's time for the science bit of the Empire podcast, where Ali, the editor, that's me, by the way, uh, tells you a bit more about our sponsor, Beyond Two Souls. A psychological action thriller, Beyond Two Souls features a brand new game engine, a compelling original story, and, as mentioned previously in the podcast, a top-notch Hollywood cast in the form of Ellen Page and Willem Dafoe. It's also got a score by Hans Zimmer. This makes it a sophisticated, technologically advanced, immersive gaming experience only on PlayStation 3. In it, you'll live the extraordinary life of Jodie Holmes, played by Paige, a young woman who possesses supernatural powers through a psychic link to an invisible entity known only as Aiden. Experience the most striking moments of Jodie's life as your actions and decisions determine her fate, traversing the globe with her as she faces incredible challenges against the backdrop of emotionally charged events never before seen in a video game. Beyond Two Souls is out now, so you can buy it wherever you like, whenever you like. Thank you for listening to this little bit of blurb at the end of the podcast. It is gratefully appreciated. And please do enjoy the rest of your week. Goodbye.